Okay, we're here with Carrie King. Carrie is a research scientist and assistant director at the University of Texas Energy Institute. Carrie has a uh, PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Texas. Carrie, thanks for sitting down to talk to us. Thank you, David. Good to be here. So I want to talk about uh, your work, and in particular, I think, compared to a lot of the other conversations we're having on the website, uh, you have a, a much sort of broader, you have a much broader view of these transition trade-offs issues, a much more macro perspective. And in particular, you have made the claim that, in print anyway, that it's it will be impossible for us to meet the two degrees centigrade uh, target and continue to grow the economy at historic rates. So can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of why you think that is? Right. This comes from really thinking about what we would call the biophysical nature of the economy. In a sense, the economy uh, we, is made of machines, largely speaking, and these machines require energy input to operate. And so uh, someone like uh, Steve Keen would say, a body without food is a corpse, and a machine without energy is a sculpture. So when we talk about decarbonizing the economy, most people aren't necessarily talking about reducing the amount of energy we have to consume in machines, but that is part of the story that we need to understand is, can you actually reduce the quantity of physical throughput of the economy in terms of energy and materials and have less carbon? This is not clear when you look at the broad level macro statistics, right? At the micro level, we look at technologies and machines and we can see that they're low carbon, like wind turbines and photovoltaic panels. There's some carbon associated with making them, but it's much lower than uh, than just burning fossil fuels for electricity, for example. So that makes it seem very plausible. But then when you look at the high level data and you say, how much energy is the world consuming and how is GDP growing? If you look at the relationship between those two things, you don't really see changes that imply that you can go lower carbon. What we know is we've gone from a biomass economy uh, to a fossil economy, and this has entailed much higher energy consumption and much higher carbon emissions. All right, so we can we GDP is highly correlated to energy consumption, and more specifically, the energy consumed at end-use devices multiplied times their efficiency. So if you think about the electricity that shows up at your home times the efficiency of your air conditioner, or the electricity that shows up at a factory times the efficiency of motors, this is something that's highly correlated to GDP. Okay, so we, can we deliver all those things with lower carbon sources? Uh, traditionally, energy has is been produced and has a relatively high operating cost, say relative to capital costs, so burning fuels is a high percentage cost of operating power plants. As you go to higher capital infrastructure, this changes the that, that dynamic. So lower carbon infrastructure tends to be higher capital cost relative to operating cost. And these types of things tend to be associated with less labor and less wages, less working. So oper labor is an operating cost. If you have high operating costs to move fuel around all the time, then you have, we have traditionally needed labor to do that. So if we move to lower carbon technologies that are higher in capital spending relative to the total spending, this implies that there'll be less 
labor costs. And if there's less labor costs, this implies less money for people to buy things. And that might be one feedback that uh, triggers less economic growth. That's an example of the kind of sort of feedback that would do that. That's, yeah, I think that's one of them. The other thought in terms of a transition is really about the rate of transition to a low carbon economy. So you can imagine if you're going to decarbonize the energy system in, let's just say something long, like 100 years, this might be uh, akin to the rate at which we transform the energy system infrastructure already. Things last for 40 or 50 years. Uh, power plants last for 40 or 50 years. Transmission lines may last much longer than that. So if you squeeze a certain set of investments from 100 years into, say, 10 years, you can imagine, okay, there's a certain amount of steel and concrete and driving trucks around to install solar panels or wind turbines or whatever it is. If you squeeze all that into 10 years, you are now going to squeeze all the material consumption and energy consumption associated with those activities and even the labor that is involved and even the workers that are involved in that. You're going to squeeze that into a much shorter time frame. And when you squeeze that into a much shorter time frame, during that transition, you are going to spend more money as a percentage of GDP on energy. And it's this feedback about how much money is spent on the energy system or on total energy relative to the size of the economy that is a feedback to the economy that can trigger a recession. So we've seen this because of uh, rises in oil prices in the 1970s. So we went from, say, spending 5% of GDP on energy to over 8% and over 10% in 1979, and this triggered one of the major recessions uh, since World War II. Also in 2008, the spending on primary energy of the world was approximately about 8% of GDP, and that was associated with the financial crisis, and, and the world has, has really not operating the same ever since. So those were not necessarily induced specifically because of choices, like someone's trying to invest in the energy system at so rapid a rate that the price of energy rises. But that's the kind of effect that would occur if you did try to accelerate a rapid change in energy infrastructure for the purposes I described, which are, one, there's, you're just doing a lot more activity, physically speaking, and, and, and you're going to pay for some of that in the short term, and that raises the price of energy in the short term to consumers. It would have the same effect in the 1970s. And the second reason is that the faster you transform the energy system, some of the energy system that you thought you were going to use and pay for for the next 30 years is now no longer going to be paid for or used in the next 30 years, so say some natural gas or coal-fired power plants. And so the value that people thought they were going to get from that or the income they thought they were going to get from that is not going to exist. To understand this, we, I guess we can think of there's two ways to accumulate more capital and, and grow the economy. One is to say, I just keep building the same set of infrastructure without changing technology, say, over and over, and I have more uh, energy inputs uh, in which to drive the economy. So I could have the same car. I just build the same car every year, every year, but and I, and I accumulate more and more cars, and I accumulate more and more people, and that can work if you have more and more primary energy resource to drive it, or if you have more fuel to drive these cars. So that's one way to accumulate cars, say, in this example. And accumulating cars is roughly like growing the economy. It's accumulating capital. You could argue this is what capitalism is doing, or you could argue this is what we are doing as a species, whether we know it or not, is trying to accumulate capital and stuff. 
Okay, so that's one way you can grow it. The other one, as I somewhat mentioned before, is if I have a constraint on how much energy I can input into the economy, another way I can accumulate cars is to make the cars more efficient. So if I want more cars driving around, if I can make them consume less fuel, uh, then I can use, a, say, a constant flow rate of fuel into the economy, and I can accumulate more cars driving around and drive around more miles uh, if each one is more efficient. And so most people think that is a way, or potentially is a way to uh, decrease the energy needs of the economy. And so this is where the idea of thinking that efficiency is a tactic towards decarbonization or efficiency is a tactic for dematerialization of the economy in general. But as we've already stated, when you look at the high-level data, you can say two things clearly. One, the economy is getting more efficient in terms of its machines and, and how we operate. And part of this is, is expressed as lower operating costs in general. Fuel costs are just one of these operating costs. Labor costs are another one of these operating costs. And so when you look at data, let's just say for the United States, from 1945, from the end of World War II until the early 1970s, we were using the first mode of growth that I mentioned. You're roughly building inefficient uh, vehicles, but you're, we're consuming more and more oil to power those vehicles because we have prolific oil fields in the United States, and it, energy is not our constraint. After the 1970s, energy now has become this constraining factor uh, economically, geopolitically, all kinds of reasons that people want to pontificate, but the point is we were not able to extract, afford, etc., all of the, an increasing amount of oil at 4% growth per year or energy at 4% growth per year any longer. And so after that, then the economy starts focusing on efficiency. Uh, fuel efficiency standards come after the 1970s, not before the 1970s. This is a response to growth. It's exactly what you would expect from a biophysical or biological perspective. A response to constraints on growth. Uh, yes. So if you have a constraint on growth that is, I can't acquire more fuel input, I'm going to figure out how to make my machines consume less fuel. And we clearly have more cars. We drove more miles. Uh, the economy still grew. So when you look at the data, we have become more efficient, and we have grown the economy. And so that's at the high level. So it's hard to argue this is that if you get more efficient, you're going to somehow not consume more materials because that's not in the data. The data show you get more efficient, you consume more materials uh, and energy in this case. So you made a point about um, the transition to lower carbon sources of energy implying a more sort of capital intensive and less lower variable cost energy mix, which in turn has implications for uh, employment and wages, which in turn has implica implications for the demand pull side of the economy and growth. So if I think about myself and I don't, consuming energy resources, let's say specifically, but it could be consuming just products in general and, and living my life, uh, I can fly on planes, I can drive my cars, I can cool my house to some temperature that I like, and this all costs money. Uh, maybe I have enough money, maybe I don't. But we could imagine situations in which someone, in, in terms of their household budget, might be constrained in any one of these things. Not everyone is flying around the world going on uh, global vacations or transatlantic vacations, and this could, you know, is tied to their income. So you could imagine if you wanted to restrict consumption, you could make it so that each individual household or person doesn't consume as much, right? Uh, what, 
having no income to consume more is one way to restrict uh, the consumption or having a low income. Okay. Would we expect a low income or could we possibly expect lower incomes on average or higher inequality from a low carbon infrastructure? Possibly from the perspective of this uh, high capital cost and low variable cost perspective. So if a human labor is part of the variable cost and let's just say capitalism in general is trying to minimize variable costs. That means minimizing payments to wages. And if you minimize payments to wages, you can restrict household incomes. If you can restrict household incomes for the majority of people, you can restrict their ability to consume generally, uh, and, if, and specifically energy. But if their income is restricted, therefore they don't consume as much generally, uh, then yeah, carbon emissions could go down or energy consumption could go down. So it's hard to decide, or it's hard to distinguish if something is conservation versus efficiency. But if you look at the data and you say, look, there's just less, a lower rate of consumption that's happening and there's more growth, then those things would be consistent uh, in terms of having to occur at the same time. You, you can see this in data for U.S. households. So U.S. households, if you look at the number of households, it's a proxy of the mass of the economy, at least a mass of part of the economy. Uh, they were consuming from World War II until the 1970s. U.S. households, as we accumulated more households, they were consuming more energy than the number of households. So the scaling law was greater than one. So if I doubled the households, I more than doubled the energy consumption. After the 70s, it's the exact opposite. If I doubled the households, I less than doubled the energy consumption of households. So the story you tell, and you said it quite circumspectly, but the story you tell is sort of implies a high potential, anyway, for increased inequality as a result of this transition. So if I were to make a guess now, that, that would, well, if we, I guess the thing would be, if we want to keep operating the economy in the same way, like we're, the, the rules of the economy are roughly the same, the owners, private ownership of capital and uh, this, this kind of tenant, then that would be my expectation, to continue, to continue along, uh, some people would say we are decarbonizing. I, I think there's evidence that shows the reason. If they were to say that, they would be looking at a metric usually of GDP or CO2 emissions per GDP or something like this and saying, well, this number is, is going down, as well as energy total consumption divided by GDP. But these are going down for these reasons I've already expressed that are related to scaling laws and getting more efficient in the face of constraints. So that's I view those as... Uh, is it declining uh, for those purposes, not because of any specific policy. It's actually re reacting to physics of operating an economy. So you don't think RPSs or pl pledges to go all renewable or any of those things are a significant contributor to decarbonization? Not to date. Uh, well, that's, I guess that's not, that's not fair to say. Uh, um, uh, well, or that they're just a mechanism in response, something that people do yeah. not so much because of their free agency or their independent will, but because they're responding to these external stimuli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe I'm trying to think about a way to say this uh, that, I, that I think would be accurate. Promoting uh, infrastructure like yeah, wind turbines or solar panels, or whether they're uh, subsidies, re research and design, uh, and, and uh, tax credits, whatever, to try to accelerate these technologies. 
Yeah, there, I would I would ask myself the question: like, are these a response to minimizing variable costs in general? That capitalism's trying to minimize variable costs, and this is a way. This is one way to do that, and so it's a natural thing to do. Uh, the rate at which you do that is the question, or how fast can this occur? Is a question. Uh, but yeah, I see that as a as we could ask whether we're originating these responses and policies, or whether uh, our policies are response to some overarching uh, driver. One of the narratives surrounding the Green New Deal is that um, we can take pretty bold steps to decarbonize uh, or mobilize to decarbonize over a 10-year period, and that that, that action will also, uh, or at least is aiming to also promote social and economic justice, which to me sounds like reducing inequality, increasing employment. Um, that, that's sort of a package that is part of the narrative in support of the Green New Deal. From what you've been saying, it sounds like you don't see those things dovetailing as neatly as that narrative implies. Uh, I guess I'll answer that by saying that, yeah, so you're you're trying to understand trade-offs, and the way I think about this is maybe those things can't occur within the private ownership of capital and maybe the maybe capitalism in general I don't I don't know that maybe those things can occur simultaneously so the people that have written on this that I tend to think have thought about the problem I don't know, say correctly or tried to think about this conflict can I increase employment equality and grow the economy and let's say and have the current private ownership of capital structure that we have without shuffling it around uh, from its current state. Uh, I think it seems unlikely. I mean, we have four or five decades now of data to support that that is a hard thing to imagine happening. And so when people start talking about uh, going to more cooperative ownership of assets or capital, whether that's natural capital or actual physical capital or financial capital, that that kind of thing might have to occur uh, uh, to have higher employment and and higher equality. You might actually have to s sort of redistribute uh, the assets. Uh, I might think, which gets you away from capitalism per se, um, and into a discussion about where and when historically that kind of ownership system has successfully existed. It's beyond probably what I can effectively answer uh, right now, but what I can say is I just came back from a one-week trip in Cuba, and so I saw somewhat of the other extreme of uh, not capitalism or collective ownership where you know 90% of whatever's sold by any person and a farmer or business goes to the government to then redistribute. Uh, there's not a lot of incentive to make more efficient stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which means there's not an incentive... If that's a key to growing, uh, which I think it is, then this is why the Cuban economy, for example, uh, would, would not appreciably grow and it's shrinking. Um, but are they uh, more carbon sustainable than, than us? You, you bet. So uh, the problem is the data points we have are slower lifestyles are associated with lower carbon and energy and faster lifestyles are not. So those are the data points we have. And what people are trying to figure out is, can I have this fast lifestyle and be low carbon? And yeah, it's 
That's that's what we're all struggling to understand. And, and we're trying to avoid that Mad Max future. Oh, right, right. The collapse of the Mad yeah, Max, yeah. yes. Well, thanks very much for sitting down to talk with us. Thank you.